From the Asset Builder headquarters in Dallas, Texas, welcome to Keep It Simple, a show that discusses simple techniques and philosophies to help de-stressify investors around the world. I'm your host, Jared Herzog, and welcome to the show. Today, we're speaking with the legendary author, Andrew Hallam. Andrew is a globally published author, most famous for his 2011 book, The Millionaire Teacher. He's given hundreds, if not thousands of talks all over the planet. And you may know Andrew from his many articles he's written for our Asset Builder Knowledge Center. And this is exactly how I know him because I've been editing those articles for about three years. It was a genuine pleasure getting to talk with him today and listen to him share his endless wealth of financial know-how and his positive spirit. Without further ado, guys, Guys, please welcome the legendary Andrew Hallam. This is actually the first time Andrew and I have ever talked face to face. We've been communicating through email and each other's edits for a while now, so it's a pleasure to finally get to talk to you. Yeah, it's great to actually see. I can actually see this guy's face too. So, uh, where are you coming from uh, today? I'm in Victoria, British Columbia. That is the only place I've ever been to in Canada is Victoria. It's a great place. What did you think of it? When were you here? Uh, I was there in, I'd say, uh, like 2014, 2013. We were on an Alaskan cruise, my family and I, and that was our final stop was Victoria. And the most striking thing about Victoria was everybody, because, you know, we Texans tend to brag about how nice we are, but oh my goodness. It was like, there was one lady, we asked for directions, and she literally followed, walked with us to the to the place. And we're like, what? <laughs> um, but yeah, Victoria was beautiful. I've done that, but you know, you can get a free lunch out of that sometimes too. Oh, really? I'll remember you said that. <laughs> well, Andrew, it's a really uh, big pleasure to get to talk to you finally. Um, we know you around the office. You know, we often... Uh, discuss your articles here and there you know i've stolen a few of your ideas for my own articles so i appreciate you not suing me for plagiarism i'm probably already stealing you know everybody's stealing ideas but we don't even know we're stealing them i think it just becomes part of the uh the, the whole creative influence where we read something and then we're inspired by it and sometimes we're inspired by it years later so i think yeah. every every artist does that as well i guess we're stretching it calling ourselves artists as writers but i'm gonna go with it i think artist is good all right, we're artists. So some might phrase the question, how did you get into finance? But I want to know, why did you get into finance? Were you just inherently good at picking stocks? Are you a numbers guy? Are you a gambling junkie? What sort of internal force led you to that world? It, you know, it's funny because I, I would say that I am inherently lazy. That's why I got <laughs> into finance. So like, I met somebody when I was 19 years old who had built a million dollar portfolio on a mechanic's salary. And he'd said to me, look, you can work forever for money or you can let money work for you. And, and he said in both cases, in his case and in my case, I was training to be a school teacher. So the idea of earning a, a massive income, it just really wasn't there. So I was going to be doing something I love to do. But he said, if you become financially literate, and, and very few people are, but if you can become financially literate, you can end up doing what you enjoy doing. And, uh, and, and building a reasonable amount of wealth in the process if you learn to, uh, to allocate your income effectively and to invest effectively. So when he showed me how compound interest worked, that, that was it for me. When he showed me that I could put away less money by starting earlier than other people, if, and I was 19 at the time, when he showed me how I could invest less money and end up with more money in the end, 
and then therefore end up working less as a result of it all, I was hook, line, and sinker. Really, that's pretty forward thinking for a 19 year old. When I was 19, I was like in a band or something. You know what I mean? So that. But you, you might not have met that guy though. I mean, if you met that guy, true. It is yeah. entirely possible that uh, just just that that idea it did strike my lazy bone. And you might not be as lazy as me. You might want to work a lot harder. I don't know. No, that's really interesting. So 19. So did you invest right away? Right away. Yeah. Really. So, so as soon as I figured out, as soon as he he sort of gave me a guideline, I went straight into a, a bank. And I bought my first actively managed mutual fund. And I was still saving for, I had to pay for my own college, so I was saving for that. But he got me on that idea that, you know, I got to try, I have to try to put away $100 a month. When he said that at first, I thought he was completely crazy. I said, there's no way I've got to pay for my own, my own college. There's no way I can afford 100 bucks a month. And he put it like this. He said, if you had to, you know, see that vending machine over there, if you had to, um, could you buy like two chocolate bars and then a can of Coke out of that thing um, every every shift, every every day? And I, I said, well, yeah, I, I guess I could. And he says, yeah, well, I've, I've been watching you. You actually are. I mean, you're Evan. almost doing you're almost doing that already. I see you go going to that vending machine each night. So you're already doing that. And if you add it up. Um, college boy, you'll notice that you know you're spending about three dollars and thirty three cents a day. There's about a hundred dollars a month, and so I stepped back and went, yeah, yeah. I guess I guess you're kind of right there. So it was it was that week I went into the bank and I'd set up an automatic deposit into a my very first actively managed mutual fund. I was 19 years old, and a hundred dollars a month was coming out, and I wanted to make sure that I could I could maintain that. So even when I was when I was going to college, I'd in between classes, I'd be mowing people's lawn. Um, I'd go down to the, there was a, a beach drive just below where the university is where there are a bunch of wealthy people and I'd knock on the door and ask if I could like rake their leaves, tell them what I'm doing. I'm a university student, I'm just up the hill and I'm between classes, can I rake the, the, the leaves on your lawn? Um, so it, that enabled me to continue this process and then of course when I started working, I was able to to, to save more and more money over time. And, and I got pretty crazy with the frugality part of it. I became one of those frugal weirdos. Naturally? I, or was I it became, sort of... Oh, no, I, it, wasn't, it wasn't natural. Um, I think, Jared, I became obsessed with it over time when I saw how numbers could compound, especially at a young age. And so, um, so I didn't buy the same kind of material things or do the same kind of things many, many uh, I would say, normal people do. I would look for the cheapest rent I could possibly find, and in my case, when I was teaching, that was uh, that was about 30 miles from where I was working. I found this incredibly cheap rent, and uh, and I would ride my bike to work. So I would ride 30 miles each way. So I had this like 60 mile round trip. Um, before that, I actually even even before that, I got this notion in my head that I could uh, that I could house it, and not pay rent at all. So I put ads in the local newspaper saying that I was a school teacher willing to house it, that I was uh, responsible and uh, employed. And I left out a series of other adjectives like crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but man, it, it, uh, it was nuts. And it's not like I recommend it. But when I look back at it, I also realized that it was also a fun time. It was a fun, challenging time. And I, and I enjoyed it, and I did enjoy seeing the process of seeing the the wealth accumulate at at you know a relatively young age. So you started out as inactive funds, 
but obviously now that is not the case. What uh, inclined you to make the switch from actively managed funds to a more index approach? Well, it, it's funny because I actually went from actively managed funds to buying individual stocks. Okay. And and I was reading everything I could on buying individual shares. Like, um, obviously, I read Benjamin Graham's book, The Intelligent Investor. Um, I even read Security Analysis, which is a book that he'd written in like, uh, 1932 or something like that. It was a, it's a tome of a book. Uh, I ended up reading everything I could on how Warren Buffett picked individual stocks. So Robert Hagstrom's books on um, the Warren Buffett portfolio, Timothy Vick's book on how to pick stocks like Warren Buffett. And I bought my own shares and I ended up writing magazine articles as well for you know how to invest like Warren Buffett. Some Those were some of my earliest magazine stories. So I did, I went from actively managed funds realizing that they were expensive. And I just kept reading, reading, reading. I know that by the time I was 35, I had read well over 400 uh, personal finance and investment books, well over 400. And I used to Thanks. I used to keep them on. I'd count them and go, whoa. And I'm, I mean, I was buying these too and reading them uh, multiple times. So that was where I was spending my money. And and then what ended up happening was for, for many people, they, they pick individual stocks and they'll do poorly and then they'll realize, well, I'm not beating the index. I actually did quite well as a stock picker, but I had to – when I was researching for my book, Millionaire Teacher, um, by that time, I already had some indexes and individual stocks. So that's my, my portfolio was pretty much a blend between the two. And, and I was reading about guys like Bill Miller, who ran a, an actively managed mutual fund called the Leg Mason Value Trust. And he had beaten the S&P 500 index fund 15 years in a row until the year he didn't. And, and as a result of this, when he didn't, um, he ended up giving back all of the advantages, all of the advantage that he'd had over the S&P 500 that he'd eked out over the previous 15 he years. He lost it all? Well, he didn't lose it all, but he lost the advantage. So okay. let's, you know, let's say you'd invested 10,000 bucks in an S&P 500 and let's say it would have grown to 20 grand. Mm -hmm. And let's say with his fund, it would have grown to 30 grand. Okay. Well, after a couple of years, so 2009, 2010, 2011, um, anyone who had invested with him during that during a, that that lengthy winning period would have actually done better had they bought a low-cost index. And I had to ask myself some really humbling questions then. I had to ask, well, okay, I'm doing well picking individual stocks, but am I smarter than Bill Miller? Uh, and the, the answer there was definitely no. I mean, there's got to be this, there's, there's, a, there's a large element of luck to this. And I, I guess I was a stock I'd owned individual stocks for maybe 12 years, which is nothing. Like that's not that's not a very that's uh, not that's not much of a time frame to really <laughs> determine I mean, that, that you're successful not or not. Yeah, yeah. but it's a but it, you know in the, in the grand scheme of things, when it comes to investing, 10 years, 12 years is a total blip. So somebody can be lucky and have a couple of really good years, which buoys you nicely, and then yeah, you have a 10 year, 12 year winning record. But long term. Uh, a 10 years is really too short a period of time. I also know like you know guys like Ray Dalio who manages the uh, the Bridgewater's um, Pure Alpha Fund. It's the biggest hedge fund in the world. Um, the guys the guys IQ runs circles around mine. Absolutely runs circles around mine. Um, but over the last I don't know 12 15 years, I've outperformed Ray Dalio. 
and it's how have I done it? I mean, even if you look at his, I looked at his fund over the last nine, say nine or ten years, and I looked at his uh, his hedge fund, and I, even when I deduct the fees over the last nine or ten years, he would have underperformed a simple diversified portfolio of low cost indexes. So there's a lot of the uh, there's a lot of mystique that surrounds someone that does well for a period of time, but there's often this reversion to the mean. So in almost all cases active fund managers end up end up reverting to the mean. They might do well for a while until they don't. I mean, there's a, re there's a reason why when Warren Buffett dies, uh, he's entrusted his estate on behalf of his wife to be invested in, in low-cost index funds. All right, so let's play a little devil's advocate. So you're obviously an index, and fund, uh, index investor advocate. Um, let's say you had, though, to make an argument for the opposite. So let's say you are trying to put down index investing and you are saying picking stocks is the way to go. How would you formulate that argument? That's awesome that you ask that because I've always felt that uh, to, to, to truly understand one side, you have to be able to debate the other. Um, and I see that politically too, which is really funny. I find too, people can't typically argue the other side politically, whether you're a Democrat most people can't argue the Republican side or vice versa, it's but, but it's but it's it's so essential that you have to, that you that you're able to do that. So, if I were my life were depending on the sales of actively managed funds, um, I would have to say something like if I could, I went out there on the street and I had to peddle these things, yeah, I would say uh, okay. First of all, I would I would show people funds with winning track records. I would look for certain factors that I knew had done well recently. So I'd look for actively managed growth funds. So if mm -hmm. I were selling these things to you and I were on the street, I'd look at actively managed growth funds. So a growth fund is typically filled with businesses that uh, that have high earnings um, and and high projected future earnings. So you'd have them filled with companies like Apple, um, Amazon, Netflix, Tesla. So what I would do is I would show somebody a, a actively managed growth fund that, uh, that had outperformed the S&P 500. And there are probably a lot of them that have just because growth has done really, really well lately. And everything comes in cycles and no one knows when that cycle is going to end. So growth is really the opposite of value where you have value stocks, which are cheap stocks, stocks that have low prices relative to book value and earnings. Um, right now, they're out of vogue because they haven't performed as well as the market over the last, say, 10-year period. But if I had to peddle actively managed products, if that was my shtick, I'd go out and I'd show people charts of active managed funds, and I'd say, look, they beat the stock market index, um, they beat the total market index, you should be investing with me because they are going to continue to beat the market index. But if they're like, but over a long period of time, have they performed the same? Uh, over long periods of time, most growth funds, actually growth funds in general, have underperformed value. So it's uh, it's actually rare. It's the rare decade where growth funds outperform value. Usually, value stocks end up beating growth. But um, but you ask me, what would I do to try and sell the average person on this? And and that's what I would do is I would just show them growth funds that have done well, and I'd convince them that look. Um, Apple, Netflix, Amazon, are they going anywhere? Can you see them going anywhere? And I get the people saying, no, no, they're not going anywhere. Do you believe that they're big companies? That's the thing about convincing people too. If you can get them to say the word yes, 
Apparently, you get them to say the word yes in any context, you can be a really great salesperson. Do you believe that Amazon's the biggest company in the world? Yes. Do you believe that Amazon's doing really well during COVID-19? Yes. Do you believe Amazon will continue to do well? Yes. Well, I'm only going to get you into actively managed funds that buy stocks like Amazon. Does that sound good to you? Yes. <laughs> wow. And we really are kind of just dumb animals, huh? That's, that's oh, I, that, I, I sound like a master manipulator right now. I don't know. Sounds like you might have had some experience there, huh? Well, I, I've, I've found it really interesting. I've had experience. I'll tell you where I've had experience. I've had experience looking at what and how do people sell others on actively managed products? Yeah. What are the arguments that they use? Because for me, yeah. when, I, when I speak to a really good friend, I mean, and this would have started, shoot, this would have started 20 25 years ago when I really figured out that active managed funds were were not the way to go and my friend had an advisor and really trusted his or her advisor and I come up with this notion that you know you're going to do a lot better in a portfolio of index funds but my advisor says so I was always hearing these but my advisor says and so then I would sort of in my mind mentally collected all of what these advisors had said and then uh, and then for one chapter in Millionaire Teacher, which I published in 2011, I actually have a chapter called uh, Peek Inside a Pilferer's Playbook. And I listed all of the, uh, the reasons that I've heard that people talk about in support of actively managed funds. And then one by one, I said, this is what your advisor will say. Um, and this is how they'll term it and bring it together. And, and then this is really the true answer here. This is... Here's, here's the, uh, let's pull the curtain behind the, the Wizard of Oz here and, and let you see really pretty what's happening. And that was probably the most popular chapter in that book. It was kind of cool how many people came to me later and said, man, that was it. You nailed it. Like I, the, the advisor went through like step by step exactly saying what you said that they would say. And yeah. Uh, yeah. So speaking of advisors, would you say that, I know realize you might have a conflict of interest on this question, but advisors in general are they what you might say a necessary evil or are they necessary at all so it, so i've gone through this this transitional period where i thought all of them were horrific <laughs> that they're all like they were the devil so i'm gonna tell somebody about that no, i'm just kidding. every financial advisor is the devil yeah so that's how that's how i saw it uh-huh. and for a number of years that's hilarious and then yeah. And then, then I would start to see advisors turning towards the indexed approach. And I'm going, okay now, okay, now we're getting somewhere where now these guys are, these men and women are not all, although most still are selling peddling active managed products. There's a small percentage that are, that are building portfolios of low-cost index funds or the DFA-type models. Right. And, and so I looked at that and went, uh, that's pretty cool, uh, but you know what? There's still there's an added fee associated with that, so it's cool. But am I going to recommend it? Uh, I'm kind of on the fence with it there. Now, even in that vein, even when we're looking at that particular type of advisor, the types of advisors that do that, there are degrees of there are degrees of um, what am I going to say this in terms of service? I guess in terms of yeah, sure degrees of value. Let's call yeah. it degrees of value. Because I have some friends of mine who have, um, and when we look at behavioral studies on how people manage their own investment portfolios, because right? this is the this is the kicker right here. Let's just talk about this part first. Sure. Let's talk about 
somebody out there buying their own index funds through Vanguard. For me, I think, yeah, anyone can do that. It's really easy. You go out and you buy your, your whatever, U.S. stock index, your international stock index, and your bond index. But what ends up happening is that there's a, typically there's a gap between how the fund performs and how the investor performs based on their behavior. So everything's hunky-dory when things are rising. People can continue to add money to their investments. But when we get through a period of turmoil, whether it's 2000 to 2003, whether it's that period of 2008, 2009 with the financial crisis, or whether it's this COVID-19 crisis we have right now, when you get through periods or when people encounter periods of turmoil, they start to speculate. Even index fund investors, they start to speculate. I see yeah. it on forums on a daily basis yeah. where people will be coming into some money and they'll be thinking about, well, I'm thinking of holding off because I heard some guy on TV who said that the markets will do X, Y, and Z. Um, and of course, that's that's mostly that's mostly bunk because nobody knows what the markets are going to do going forward. No one has any kind of clue. So there's that element of there if there's a gatekeeper. So if your financial advisor can be that gatekeeper to stop you from panic selling, so whereby you know you have to actually call them instead of just click a button, open your right. Vanguard account, click. I'm going to sell because I've, I've heard things are going to drop significantly. Um, and I knew loads of people who sold in 2009, January, February, 2009. Oh, no. Loads of people. I knew loads of people who did that. Um, and before that, you know, they were the same people that said, I can stay the course. Um, I've got a low-cost portfolio of index funds. I know that I'm thinking, I have to think long-term. Had those people have had someone that they could or had to call to say, can you can you sell for me? Somebody who was the gatekeeper who could talk them away from the ledge. If they had the, that person, that person would have been worth their weight in gold. The the other side, <laughs> flip side, is the whole financial. Um, the whole, there's, there's another financial side to this, and it's not just the investment side, but it's is this person acting as a money coach? So is the advisor actually convincing you to try and save more money and setting up a financial plan for you so you can see how much you need to be putting away to reach what your financial goals are? And they're helping you with things like taxes. And they're, they're helping you with things like estate planning. Um, yeah. They're helping you with things like discipline. So I've seen some financial advisors who are amazing in that vein. And they, they have a small number of clients. And, uh, and they tend to be, um, they, they need high, high net worth clients typically because they have a small number of them. Um, so they obviously, um, they don't make a lot of money off their clients. So they need the asset base to be fairly large to work with these people, but they'll speak to their clients on a quarterly basis for an hour and, and ask them questions like, I know one financial advisor in Thailand, um, she and her husband are a couple of Americans that work with expats, and they're, they're asking their clients, um, and their clients have told me this, they're asking their clients, like, how much are you spending on groceries? They're asking them to, to lay out the entire, the entire budget. And, and as a result of that, these people end up be, becoming better savers as well. So, yeah, there's a there's a need there's a definite need for it in certain sects for sure. Not everybody, not everybody needs a financial advisor, but in some cases. So I'm not in that position anymore, Jared. Where I'm going to say they're all evil, black or white. Yeah. Would we all be better investors if there were no media? Oh, I think so. Uh, <laughs> I think so too. Absolutely. I think we'd be better investors too if we never even knew what the markets were doing. Yeah. Like you got a, you got a statement once every five years and you never saw the market. 
You never knew where the market was going. As a group, we would be far better as investors. What do you think about, obviously we touched on market gurus. Is there something to them or are they genuinely kind of all hype, all scam? Is there some good there or just stay away from market gurus? I'd say stay away from all market gurus. Um, I, so I have a friend who works for a, a radio station and, and they just, they report business news and she, she sounds really smart and really articulate. And I was a guest on the radio station several times. And after, I don't know, maybe the third time I started asking the hosts, like, so where do you guys put your money? None of them invest. <laughs> none of them invest. None of the, wait, none of the no. market. Oh my goodness. So, you gotta be kidding me. So these, so what they're doing to, to Jared, to be fair to them is they're reporting the news all the time, the price of Bitcoin, the level of gold. And they're having all of these people that come on as their hosts who think that they can see the future. So they have all of these market, the market gurus are essentially coming on and, and speaking now. So they're the ones that they're inter interviewing. But as a result of that, I think some of the worst investors ever, the people that are fully exposed to the investment news, and they are fully exposed because that's their job. But when we look at market forecasters, um, and, and CXO Advisory did, has done a, a really interesting study on economic forecasters, people that are on CNBC or CNN or whatever, yeah, the, yeah. Stations, whatever the stations are. I don't even know the stations, but because um, I don't watch them, you can tell. Do you not watch at all? No, I, I don't watch it all. I think I think as a kid, sometimes I'd watch for a few minutes because like, I don't know, there might have been a pretty girl on there talking for a bit, but I realized <laughs> pretty soon it was all just noise. And uh, and yeah. and when you look at the studies on these people, they, they can't predict anything. That's why Warren Buffett says market forecasters just exist to make fortune tellers look good. He doesn't know where the markets are going to go, and he never has, and he admits it. And basically, yeah. if he doesn't know... Huh, what are the odds of someone else really knowing with any degree of consistency? And you see funny thing, you know, you see the people that they get lucky with a certain prediction. Like um, predicting 2008, like that one guy. Yeah, yeah. But what's weird is, too, when you look back at it, often you see these same people predicting some catastrophic moment and all the predictions are wrong. And then all of a sudden one is right. It's like a broken clock being right twice a day. And so now they make their career on that. But then when you follow them afterwards, it's a. Uh, it's, it's, it's just a goon show because they might be asked to run a hedge fund or asked to run a mutual fund. And I've written about this too, where you've looked at the people that have tracked the market or at least that have supposedly predicted the market. Like there was a woman who predicted supposedly the market crash of 1987. Um, and, and her investment acumen has been an absolute disaster since then. Um, we even have, uh, yeah, we have several people that have supposedly predicted the market and then, and then gone on to done disastrously afterwards. I mean, John Bogle says he doesn't know anyone who's ever predicted the market twice. Hmm. So here's an easy one. Why, if you had to sum up simply and um, succinctly, why are you all in on Buffett? Well, he's, a, he's an interesting guy in that he, he has a lot of integrity. And so that's, the, that's a really interesting thing about him. He, he knows that about 90% of investment professionals will underperform the U.S. stock market index going forward. And he's not afraid to say it, despite the fact that he's a, a stock picker. He has so little faith in other stock pickers that obviously when he dies, you know, his portfolio on behalf of his wife is going to be invested in a portfolio, of, a really simple portfolio of stock and bond market index funds. Uh, he's honest. He has a lot of integrity. So uh, yeah, Buffett's, uh, Buffett's a really interesting character since the, I mean, he started running Berkshire Hathaway in 1965 is when he became chairman. 
And as Berkshire Hathaway grew, he was always really honest with his shareholders. And he always said, you know, the larger Berkshire Hathaway grows, the tougher it is going to become for us to beat the market. He never said that we will continue to beat the market. Mm. And and if you do look at the, the, the last sort of 10 to 15 years, Berkshire Hathaway has underperformed the market. So it's become that big. But I just really like uh, and admire his honesty. Finally, the most important question of the day, who do you think is nicer, Canadians or Texans? I have no clue. I well, you're meeting a Texan right now, so judge, judging by my sheer nicety. <laughs> oh, dude, that's horrible, <laughs> because now you're making me seem incredibly unscientific. I've spent, <laughs> I've spent 30 minutes trying to convince everybody how scientific and rational I am as a thing. <laughs> now, you pose me this one anecdotal example. That's right. That's we throw you off nice here in Texas. Canadian. Canadians or Texans. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You don't have to Tex answer that. You know what I, I do like? I the, the people in the southern U.S., in the southern states, I have noticed through driving through there that they, they do tend to be more hospitable. Like, it's true about southern hospitality. I, when I go down there, I know it and I feel it. So it's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. And you're, pretty, and you're a pretty good guy. Thanks, man. So you've been down here? You've been down here in Old Tejas? Yeah, I drove I drove through there and uh, and actually went. Um, Ken flew me there, uh, my wife and I, and we met the asset builder team back in 2015. Okay, 14. so that's before my time. Yeah. Yeah, 2014 or 2015. Yeah. Very cool. And you didn't want to just move here immediately. Uh, not immediately. No. You know, it's funny you say that because I don't really want to move anywhere. Like, um, as you know, my wife and I are nomadic. Yes. So Andrew's always taunting me while I'm at the office with a cool new place that he's in. He's like, yeah, I'm in this. Uh, where were you biking in Italy or biking through the mountains of Italy? And I'm sitting there in my my office. But you have made it as a nomad, as a digital nomad, as you call yourself, um, making money and traveling the world. And it's incredible. How do you do that? We, well, we, we started to do that in 2014. We thought we'd take a year off work when we were teaching in Singapore at an American school there. Massive school, 4,000 kids, K to 12, mostly American passport holders. We loved it, but we decided we would take one year off. And one year led to two, which led to four, which led to six, I guess. We're in our sixth okay. year now. And we, we find that we can explore and get into some really cool, low-cost places. And, you know, one of the things that has really sort of perpetuated this travel has been the speaking about investing. So I get invited to give right. talks about investing around the world. And, and these talks are often in places that I never would have imagined going, Jared, like Oman. Like, <laughs> who thinks about going to Oman? I don't know where that is. Oman is amazing. Where is, is Oman? It's, it, so okay, it's in it's uh it borders the United Arab Emirates. Okay. So it's in it's in the Middle East. Okay. And it is a spectacularly beautiful really? country with incredibly lovely, generous, kind-hearted people. Wow. And the the best swimming, freshwater swimming locations I have ever seen. Wow. I'm gonna send you I'm gonna send you a, a YouTube clip. Of this of this place called Wadi Shab in Oman. But anyway, what what my wife and I ended up doing was we'd get a request to come and speak, mm. and we'd go to the area. How and did they hear about you? Is it your book? 
Yeah, I guess it started out with it started out with my book. So okay. first with Millionaire Teacher, and so I was giving some speaking engagements then, and then then I wrote another book called Millionaire Expat. So now you have all these people who live abroad. Okay. Live, okay. They're living overseas, and so they're asking me to come and speak. So um, and it might be like Facebook in Dubai, for example, would be inviting me to speak, and so yeah, I give talk. And then I hang out in the region. My wife and I hang out and check out, check out the area. But uh, in 2017, for example, we ended up, I ended up giving 90 talks in 13 different countries uh, in that year alone, which was amazing. Wow. Because every time we coupled it with, uh, with a holiday. That's incredible. 90. So you've been all around the world. So you took a year off in Singapore, and all of a sudden it's turned into this where you're giving speaking arrangements uh, all over the world. That's amazing. Yeah, it's and it's really, it's just been COVID-19, which is really the first thing that stopped us. So we were in yeah. Costa Rica, and we took this amazing cycling trip around Costa Rica in February, January, February. And we came to Victoria, British Columbia, just to spend a little bit of time with our family, with my family, um, 10 days. That was our plan. And then we had flights to, to Kiev, Ukraine, and then to, uh, to Cyprus. And so I was going to be giving talks there. And typically when I give a talk and I put it online and say, just gave this talk, or I'll, I'll post it on, on a, my book's Facebook page. Uh, typically then the ball really gets rolling when I'm, especially when I'm in a region and somebody will then say, hey, I work for you know, this company and could you come and speak here? And so it just starts to, it just starts to roll. So yeah, we were ready for it to roll again in 2020. And, yeah. uh, and then this COVID-19 hit, so we... Uh, we're we're kind of stuck, but we're stuck in a nice place, so that's okay. Yeah, Victoria ain't too bad a place to be stuck. It's a nice place, yeah. Yeah. If you had to pick any one place that you have visited over this last five years to spend a week, and it's the last time you could travel, where would you go? Oh, man. One week, Tough. one travel. Tough question. Turkey, I know. I saw your turkey pictures. I was blown away you know the hot air balloon it's so hard is the more places you go to the more you realize you you can't uh you can't easily answer that question because there's a there's something about every place that's absolutely amazing so um man i don't know if i could you know oman was on my lips so i would say like right now right away i want to say oman but then i'm thinking wait no northern thailand northern thailand's incredible um, and then i think about this island in the south china sea called pulau tioman which is one of my favorite places um i might pick that if i always said to my wife like hey if i this is before we were married i said if i ever dropped off the face of the earth and decided to just completely cut ties with everything you'll find me on Pulau Tioman at this island in the South China Sea that's just absolutely stunning and uh, there are really very few tourists a few backpackers but um, no road structure a lot of walking around the island so it's mountainous so you mm -hmm. have to get be able to go from one end to the other and you have to be able to seriously hike so like a three three and a half hour hike from one end to the other but that place is amazing yeah tough question to answer <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on today. And unless there's anything else uh, you'd like to add, we can we can get out of here. All right. No, I think that that's great for now. I mean, I could talk all day, and you guys don't want to hear me talk all day. So maybe people should just get on with their days and uh, maybe tune in next week. You guys have been listening to or reading Andrew's articles for a long time now. Um, 
And uh, it's it's just been more than a pleasure to get to actually finally talk to you and meet you and see what a nice guy you are. Intelligent. Pleasure's mine. Pleasure's mine. All right, Andrew. We'll talk soon. Next week. All right. Sounds good. Take care. For links to Andrew's books, website, and articles, check out the show notes at assetbuilder.com slash podcast. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not to be construed as an offer, solicitation, recommendation, or endorsement of any particular security, product, or service. For more information, visit assetbuilder.com.